Okay, so I'm just going to um, briefly introduce my study and um, tell you about why I chose narrative inquiry. Um, and again, I think it's a, I think it's you know for probably I think a lot of narrative inquirers kind of end up choosing it because it seems to fit. And certainly for me, um, I kind of came to it thinking it was something that I already knew from my clinical practice as an occupational therapist. I soon discovered it was not, you know, really very related. It was it was it's quite a different beast. Um, but I'm going to also talk to you about how I approached its use because partly because I think. Um, you can read and read and read about narrative inquiry and still think, but how do you do it? Which was, you know, part of my journey. So hopefully that might kind of help someone who's at the earlier stages of thinking about how to use narrative inquiry. That's good to see some nods as well. Okay. Well, my way isn't the only way. That's the other problem you've got. You've got, you know, lots of choices. Um, and so, and also to talk a little bit about what narrative inquiry has enabled me to discover that I think. Um, is different to um, to if I'd have used other other methodologies. Um, okay, so so the title of my um, research is the possible selves and occupational potential of healthcare students with narrative uh, sorry with dyslexia um, and narrative inquiry. And um, my kind of story is a very is a personal and professional one. So my this story began when um, my child uh, when I realised that my child had dyslexia which I thought was no big deal. And when we had the diagnosis, it was, that was fine. Now, you know, I had this perception that, well, now we know what we're working with. That's absolutely fine. There shouldn't be any further problems. But came across quite a lot of misunderstanding, even discrimination. Um, and it wasn't just once. It was pretty constant and went on for quite a few years to the point where I ended up in tri two tribunals um, to try to get my child into a familiar, into a, a dyslexia friendly environment and um, I knew that my story wasn't the only story because obviously I looked online I spoke to friends whose children also had dyslexia and but at the same time I still I, um, I teach on an M level course in occupational therapy and there are lots of students with dyslexia on this course so I kind of had this discussion and this dilemma where I was saying to one of my colleagues well, if the education system is like this, then how are these students managing to get onto these M-level courses? You know, what, what's happened in between that? What, is, what are their stories? So straight away, I was really interested to just kind of to start hearing what people, what other people were doing and how they'd got to where they got to, despite some of the, you know, some of the barriers, um, but also facilitators. There must be things that have helped along the way as well. Um, so the aim of the research is to study, uh, sorry, to explore the occupational potential. So that's, I'll tell you a little bit about that, and the possible selves um, of the healthcare students. Um, and it considers the strategies that the students have put in place. I really wanted to know, you know, what what has helped, what's been, what, and what has been a barrier for them. But I also wanted a real sort of um, a real temporal perspective. So the past, the present, and the future were very important within this study. Um, which is probably one of the reasons I ended up thinking about using narrative inquiry. So my questions were about, um, you know, how their possible selves have been shaped and how they continue to be shaped, what strategies are employed to reach these possible selves, um, and what role does occupational potential play within this? And I will explain what occupational potential is. So um, there are lots of kind of dichotomies surrounding dyslexia. Um, 
we've got um, we've got the policy which says that um, early screening is essential for children to reach their potential. It's a pretty it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, it is. It seems to be to me. Um, and yet we haven't got any screening. We haven't got we we might have you know the odd teacher who was trained within the odd school, but we haven't got any systematic training of teachers within the UK and within many other countries as well. And, and yet we've also got um, more recently reduced identification. So more recent papers like um, the 2011 paper Support and Aspiration um, acknowledges that families are having to fight but at the same time is advocating for reduced identification. So he's saying yes, you know, all these poor families are having such a tough time but actually teachers, you're identifying too many people, even though there is lots of literature to suggest that it's under-identified. So there are so many dichotomies surrounding dyslexia. Um, and, you know, by the way, you know, reasonable adjustments, they're not just something to add, to add on. It's actually the law that we do this. It's, it's not something that we can take lightly. It's people's lives that it's affecting. And as you can see, I can get really passionate. So my blood has boiled for many years now. Um, so narrative, one of the reasons I chose narrative inquiry was um, I came across Clandin and, um, and Connolly. Um, and they talk about this three-dimensional space um, where you think about the spatiality, the temporality, and the sociality. Um, but not only that, they talk about the ex how experience comes from experience, which to me was very powerful. As an occupational therapist, um, a Dewey ontology underlies our profession, you know. So I started reading about narrative inquiry and it just had lots of kind of, um, well, it spoke to me in a language that I understood for a start, but lots of, um, it, you know, it, it resonated with me for lots of reasons. So it talks about, uh, well, Clandon and Connolly in particular talk about a collaboration between the researcher and the participants, and I like this. I like the idea that we are we are there together. It talks about co-construction. It talks about being there and positionality. It talks about um, you know the the importance of time um, and in a place or series of places and social interaction within milieus. So to to me again to situate somebody in the context that they exist within is essential. None of us. Are on a small, you know, on this, on a, on a, in a little isolated bubble by ourselves. We are all influenced by the world we exist within. So one of the things about um, narrative inquiry that I sort of very quickly discovered as well was that, you know, I was looking for, um, I was looking for a framework. I was looking for some sort of recipe, um, but I soon discovered it's, it isn't linear. Um, it isn't restrictive, which is fantastic because it can be so creative. And I love that about it, and I, I agree with what was said earlier about it probably does need to be a mature, <laughs> thank goodness I am fairly mature, um, student, because there are so many uncertainties when you do involve yourself in it, and so many directions, and so many ways it can be, that it, it, and it can be very unnerving. And my experience has been kind of moving, and then hitting a brick wall, and then moving again, and then hitting the brick wall, but I learned to sit at the bottom of the brick wall and, and just think and then talk to Jacqueline because she's my supervisor and usually she would dig me out somehow. <laughs> okay, so, oh, sorry, just to go back. Um, I think that, that creativity that it enables is fantastic, but I also think it highlights and brings up lots of ethical issues because 
there's a real um you know there's a real ethical responsibility as the narrative inquirer and as a researcher to um to keep i think to keep a rein on it which hopefully you know i'll explain a little bit more about later so possible selves is um is what we perceive we might become in the future um and it's it's a concept that was developed by marcus Amerius in the 1980s and it's been developed further by people like um Oyserman. So it's, it's these ideas, these perceptions of how we might see ourselves in the future, which some of us have might, we might have very salient, very elaborate ideas, and some of us just might not have very many ideas at all. Some of us might have just fairly vague or, um, you know, not really have much of a clue about the future. But um, Daphne Oyserman started to think about how, what people do on the way to these possible selves or these perceptions of themselves in the future is as important of what they perceive themselves or how they perceive themselves to be. So, um, so the actions that people put in place, it's no good me thinking, right, I'm going to run the Great North Run next year. If I don't now start training to run the Great North Run, it's just an apply to do it. It's just not going to happen. Um, and it isn't going to happen, by the way. So. <laughs> no chance. Um, and then we've got this other thing that, so these actions that Oysterman talked about made me think about the occupations, so the things that we do. And and these two things started to really fit together. Um, and what we do exercises our capacities. So if you've got something like dyslexia, or you haven't got dyslexia, what what you actually do in your life will change who you are, how you see, perceive yourself, perhaps a possible self, but because of neuroplasticity, because we develop, because of the things that we uh, we do and the environments that we live in, we change all the way through, which again is, you know, is beautifully kind of captured within something like narrative inquiry because this dynamic dynamicism is kind of is allowed to be there and acknowledged to be there. Um, so occupational potential is what can be brought into actuality through engagement in occupation. So, um, so imagine a child with dyslexia who um, might dislike reading because you know um, because it, it, it's just uncomfortable or it's it's not something they automatically want to do or maybe they've been discouraged from school maybe they've been told they're a terrible reader or they're a terrible speller and you know all of these things can happen well if that child doesn't engage in reading then imagine what their future could be like so we've got these kind of things working together haven't we these lots of um, lots of issues coming together. Um, so the story is the way we make ourselves known and the story is being um, spoken and then interpreted and then becoming the narrative. Um, the experience is being continuous so the, so the past experience is leading to how I am today and, my, and then my future experiences so this is very sort of you know feeling it does feel fairly linear but it's, it's also quite diverse as well. Um, the, the, the silences and the gaps and the interruptions and, and the incoherences Clandon and talks about and, this, and when she talks about this she talks about how um, about this being important within the, the spaces that we involve in the actual narrative inquiry um, and that you by acknowledging the, um, the sociality, sociality and the temporality then you're looking and you, you're acknowledging these kind of spaces and what's not being said, what silences are actually there that, that aren't being acknowledged. Um, and also this kind of the, uh, the, the relational. So she talks about positioning yourself as a researcher <coughs> alongside the, um, the participants. 
um, and alongside their experiences. But more than just positioning yourself, it's very much a case of um, of your your own subjectivities being part of your interpretation and part of the study. So, and that that for me felt I had to grapple with that a little bit because I felt so. Um, I felt so passionate and so angry sometimes, so I did have to manage that with reflexivity and um, and lots and lots of reflection. But that's fantastic because that's all part of the narrative kind of journey, really, the the inquiry space. Um, so it, it, so as as I was saying, it encourages um, the the consideration of the person within their environment. So we've got the sociological surroundings, their families, their role models, their friends, their teachers. We've got the cultural, institutional, political, we've got the laws, the policies, all of these things. And the person is um, is in the middle of this, but kind of interacting and, and this kind of process is quite dynamic. We've got everything that happened in the past, we've got what's happening in the future, and then, we, sorry, in the, in the present. And then what are the possibilities for the future? So we've got this very sort of dynamic um, kind of movement going on as well. Um, and then we've got this kind of experience of taking part in the research, which is actually validating as well, validating for the researcher and validating for the participants, which again links back a little bit to my kind of clinical use of narrative, because to hear somebody's story is validating their story and saying, yeah, this, this is what you're experiencing and, and you know, I, I get that and, and the importance of that in helping somebody to kind of move on and move forward. And then we've got the person in the middle with, um, with their attributes and their capacities, which will be changing all the time due to all of these other things that they are kind of experiencing and, and the, the world that we live in. So again, as, as was said earlier, it isn't the, the aim is not to create faithful representation of reality, um, but it's to generate a new relation. And this kind of really came through in my, in my research in that you're asking someone to reflect on what has happened and they will change their perceptions of what happened because of taking part in the research, which is where, again, I think the ethical responsibility is really highly important and how much you probe and push someone to answer your questions, you know, it needs to be very carefully managed because it can, it can too much can come out and they might leave the your, your interview space feeling feeling degraded or feeling that they, they didn't mean to kind of disclose so much so that has to be re really um, carefully managed um, and then this kind of pragmatic um, view around knowledge and how knowledge leads to knowledge and experience leads to experience so it's not about replicating the views um, or the experiences it's about looking at the consequences and, and, this, and this continuous experience as it is lived and continues after the research as well. So one of the issues I had was relating to audibility and um, I went through this kind of process of right I've got, I've got my transcripts now I need to produce something that does justice to the stories that I've just heard. And what I found was that when I, I followed Clendon and Connolly's um, way of, of, of kind of producing narratives, I kept singular narratives from each person. And, uh, but I'd, I had also, throughout the process, just completely immersed myself. And I was very, and I'd, I'd had done some sort of form of, um, I'd done some interim analysis, which I'll show you. And what I found was happening was there was a little bit of, um, of their this, the participant stories being lost. And that's partly because of this interaction between 
between the researcher and the participant and they are coming together for a narrative inquiry. So I decided to um, to produce acts and scenes of a play and that was to kind of to manage that, to keep some separation there. Um, and I used interim analysis and I, um, I've got a I have got an example of it, so literally copied and pasted the transcript, but then used, oh, it's not very, you can't see that very well. So the middle column is, um, is to identify plots, um, the, the who, when, why, where, the consequences, but also the spatiality and the sociality, um, as well as the um, temporality as well. So, so in, and then in this column, the past and um, present possible selves and any kind of evidence of occupation, occupational potential as well. So I kind of took through each interview, I took transcript, I took through this process as well. So I was very familiar with um, with what, well, what what my data said, what, what it was, it was literally talking to me constantly. Um, and I found this, this very helpful to be able to establish what it was really saying to me. Um, and I organised the um, the plots and subplots into four acts and eight scenes. Mm. Five minutes, okay. So this is from one of the scenes. Um, it's it's Rebecca's story. Um, so she she talks about. So I was at school and somebody came in and did some tests with us and it tapped me and then tapped me on the back and I fell over. And spelling probably one of them things I've looked at. Um, they looked at and how long it took me to do stuff. Then my mum sent me away to, um, they told me my mum obviously that I probably had dyslexia. So my mum had to get me tested. Did she take you somewhere? Yes, this place or that place. We went to a specialised place so I got tested and, um, and so mum would have had to pay for this test about £400. Um, and I was little, I can't really remember too much. So straight away I was starting to think, right, she hasn't really thought about this for a long time. About, the, about having dyslexia and, and, and what's happening here, so, so I had to really be careful. Um, it felt, felt different and felt that it took ages to do stuff, felt like I took forever to do stuff and felt a bit thick really. My mum would hate me to say that, just feel a bit thick, a bit slow. And I'm thinking, wow, this is an M-level student, you know, she's, she's done so fantastically well and she's thinking that she's sick even now. And then I said, what, even after the diagnosis, which she'd had when she was seven, um, yes, yes, it didn't change that. No, it didn't make me feel any different. When I had a tutor, I felt a lot better. I had someone to talk to, and she would say, let's have a look at this and that. And did you understand that? That was nice. But that was paid for, my mum paid for that. So that's another 32 pounds a week that my mum was paying for. At school, it wasn't very good. We were meant to do, go to a specialised learning thing um, for, for like a couple of hours a week or something. I was just told to read, a book, to read a book that was at the right level. So it wasn't tailored to her needs. She was literally just given a book to read. Well, is that what you want to do? Um, I would just sit there and read this book and I was quite good at reading. It's interpreting. So again, you know, this complete misunderstanding of, of what dyslexia is, is about. Um, I was just slow. People had more severe difficulties than me. I carried on struggling, but because I was at the top of the bottom class, I was always overlooked. I gradually dropped throughout the years. I got worse. And again, it's a bit like you were saying earlier, I got, I got worse. And that kind of lack, that, 
you know, acceptance was a very sort of strong theme um, that came through in a lot of people's uh, work. Um, the other thing that I discovered along the way, along my journey, was about different ways of representing. So I came across eye poems. I don't know if anyone's come across Gilligan et al, 2003. Um, so another way of, um, of being able to um, increase the audibility of what Rebecca was saying was to create an eye poem from her words. So um, this is what I created. I was at school. I was told just to read a book that was at the right level. I would just sit there and read this book. I was quite good at reading. It's interpreting. I was just slow. I carried on struggling, but because I was at the top of the bottom, I was overlooked. And so there's a really strong sense of kind of invisibility, really, isn't there? There's, there's, she's there, but she's, there's so much, ongoing, so much else going on, so many other people with a lot of needs that her needs were, were overlooked. Um, so these kind of three things coming together, um, the narrative inquiry is, is, you know, it's transactional and relational, um, it's, it's a methodology as well as a phenomenon, so I think I kind of got part of the way through my study and, and thought, I think I might have been talking to someone and they said, gosh, it's dirty, isn't it? And I was like, yes, <laughs> it's exhausting. Um, and really, and I kind of realise, I think you're probably right, I don't think you actually have to have uh, I think you can use narrative inquiry without using theoretical concepts, but guess what? I use two, you know, get me. <laughs> so, um, but I'm not, I don't regret using two because it has been fantastic. And what I've found from looking at it from a possible sales point of view and occupational point of view, occupational respect, um, potential point of view, have actually been fascinating. Um, so for the possible sales point of view, how, how possible selves, how can they be perceived if you're feeling invisible, how do you start to develop ideas about who you can be in the future if actually you're overlooked at school? And how many years did that go on for? It went on through throughout her school career. Um, and she got to the end of the school career and just went in to do something that she thought she could do, um, which was beauty therapy, um, which is very similar to some of the other participants actually as well. And so she chose a kind of a route that she thought was viable rather than one that, that was really resonated with her, that was really meaningful for her. Um, one minute. Okay. So, um, and if, if somebody's capacities are not being exercised, then how are they going to ever reach their occupational potential? How is that person ever going to start to perceive their possible selves? And these things have, you know, big issues for our training and our policy, policy issues. So my personal reflection is, you know, it's relational. Um, I love how it's allowed me to um, to pull apart the ontological and the epistemological narratives. And that's what I've done by separating them out. And I felt that it was really important to increase the audibility so the students' the students' words could be heard. Um, I felt that it was really important to be just. And what the study has done is highlighted lots of injustices. So we've got marginalisation, we've got alienation and... and things like that within there as well. Um, reflection and reflexivity are so important all the way through, um, you know, to look after yourself, but also the participants, they're constantly reflecting back and you're asking them to, and you've got to be careful about that because some of the questions that you might have um, may, may be just common sense and what you live and breathe every day, but actually to them, to be saying to Rebecca, tell me about this when she hadn't really thought about it. She just knew, I think she kind of came along to, take part in the study, 
thinking, oh yeah, you know, I've got dyslexia, I'll be able to contribute, but some of my questions I had to be very careful with. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, for it, it's got to be very ethical, uh, remaining within the boundaries of what's right and within the remit of the study. So, um, just to finish, really, um, so it can make the invisible visible and the silent heard, and I think narrative inquiry has a real role to play, and I think you know, the policymakers need to be listening and it provides this complete and utter juxtaposition to what policy does say and what and compare you know, in comparison to what we think is happening. But actually the reality is, you know, whatever those realities and, and their links to truths are are highly important. So that is me. Thank you very much. Was a very far over. Yeah. <laughs>